Welcome back to the Soundtracker Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Peacock. So yeah, there's a lot of discussion and has been for years about the internet and how it can be bad and toxic and social media can be bad and toxic. And I mean, I think there's some truth to those things, obviously, but uh, there's plenty of good things about the internet and social media. And uh, the reason I'm bringing this up right now is so this episode I'm doing with Paul Soder from Broken Lizard. And, you know, years ago I saw Super Troopers in the theater on a whim. We decided, hey, we're going to check this movie out. Some friends and I was a weekend it opened. And, you know, ever since then, I've been a, a fan of their work. And, you know, here I am doing an episode with Paul, who I, I got to know a few years ago through Twitter. So the point being here is that, you know, without social media, I mean, obviously this would never be happening. And, and not just Paul. You know, I did uh, Simon Barrett did an episode in October. Dan Beckner did an episode in October. You know, there's these people whose work I've admired for a very long time. And people that, you know, without Twitter, without the internet, you know, this would never be happening. So it's just really cool to think of episode 25 here now, which is crazy. Sit back and think on some of the opportunities that I've had with this show because of things like social media and the internet and things that, yes, there are bad sides too, but plenty of good sides too as well. So anyway, that's, that's my Jack Handy deep thought here. But uh, as far as the show goes, Paul, as always, very funny very knowledgeable, brought all, you know, he loves this movie, loves this soundtrack and it shows in the conversation. Uh, I got to talk to him about club dread for a little bit. There was no way I was getting through this episode without bringing that up. That's my personal favorite broken lizard movie. Uh, some good Brian Cox stories, just a really fun conversation. And I'm looking forward to all of you getting a chance to hear it. If you are not following along, you can follow me on Twitter at Soundtracker with an underscore at the end. And as always, if you enjoy this episode or the episodes that you've heard thus far and you have not yet, give me a rating over on Apple or Spotify. All right, here it is. Enjoy. Ain't no use running. Ain't no way to hide. The beast is coming. In his sights, he ain't gonna miss you, and he ain't gonna mess around. If you're a movie with original songs, the soundtrack are gonna track you down. Oh, yeah! All right, everyone, welcome back. So, today I'm covering Rushmore, and I'm joined by Broken Lizards Paul Soder. Paul, how are you? Hey, what's up? Oh, nothing. You know, uh, funny, funny story for anyone listening. So, Paul, I actually had this plan, you know, uh, and I'm I'm assuming you knew what I was going to send you, but I was like talking about shipping something to you. And, you know, I figured I'd wait till it came closer to when we recorded. And then it became this thing where, well, first of all, I'm I'm a fucking idiot. And so when you said that you had to record at 930 Pacific time, I was like, Oh God, I got to be up and record at six 30 in the morning because I can never keep time zone shit straight. So I had it backwards. And, uh, my initial plan was to send you a couple of bottles of cotton candy Fago because yeah, you, you always give me shit about my love of that mixed with vodka. And, uh, I figured when we recorded, I was like, you know, we can, we can mix some of these up and, uh, have a drink while we're recording. You can see what you think of it. And then it was like, mm -hmm. 
I am not drinking at 630 in the goddamn morning. <laughs> so, uh, you know, not not I'm, cotton candy Fago anyway. <laughs> well, that's more is, of a Yeah, it has to be 10 a.m. before you, you get into the. That the good stuff, yeah. <laughs> the six thirty in the morning is for the raspberry hibiscus fago and vodka, as you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, you, you the, that's called a juggalo mimosa, I think. <laughs> They're great with brunch. Well, and uh, the thing is, even for you at nine thirty in the morning, I guarantee you don't want to do that. So it's it's fine. I'm I'm still going to ship you a few bottles at some point, just because I want you to see what all the fuss is about on my end. And especially, so I think I think raspberry hibiscus actually came from you and you were giving me shit about it one time. It was like one of the fake flavors you made up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know what, Eric, you've been telling me that you are going to send me Fago for almost a year now, I feel like. So there's a certain amount of, uh, forgive me for being dubious. I'll believe it when it shows up on my doorstep. <laughs> okay, so the other thing is this. To ship it to you, the closest place that I can go that there's like an actual UPS store that I can pass is like 25 minutes away. So it's, it's, I promise you it will happen. But once we had set this time into stone, I was just like, you know what? I'll, I'll do it after our episode. We'll just, we'll have a, we'll have a, a bonus episode where we discuss cotton candy, Fego and vodka. And- yeah. I mean, look, I'm willing to do a spinoff uh, podcast, a Fago podcast, uh, 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 you know, we've already talked about doing a chewing tobacco podcast. So <laughs> at this point, I'm down, you know, I'm down for whatever. Yeah, we could combine the two. Like one week we could review Fago flavors and the next week we could talk about uh, like, uh, Red Man and Levi Garrett. <laughs> or there, we could do a, as a pairing, like every episode is a different pairing of a different chewing tobacco and a different flavor of Fago. <laughs> I guarantee you nobody's doing that. I, I feel confident saying that no, that podcast does not already exist. I'm I'm googling it and actually it does. It's on the Vice God Network. Damn God damn it! <laughs> you can't find anything original under the sun anymore, man. No, there's nothing new. <laughs> All right, so Paul, let me ask you: uh, What made you? Because you weren't right away. I think I don't think there was any waffling. I don't think you were like I need you know a, a couple movies I'm thinking of. I think you pretty much right away, if I remember correctly. Dude, I asked you about this like. God, it's been about a year that I had this idea. So you were yeah. one of the first people I asked, like, hey, you want to be on sometime? And I'm pretty sure, like, right away you were like, yeah, Rushmore. Yeah, I mean, I have had very important soundtracks in my life at various times, but based on the the time period that you were floating out there, there just was no question. I would say I w- was also considering Reservoir Dogs. I would say that's the other one of that time of my life that had a, a a big effect on me. But I think even so still Rushmore. Yeah. Just head and shoulders above everything else of that time. Now, if you, if you were thinking outside of that time, what, you know, what would have been like your soundtrack uh, you were going like, and again, you absolutely could have, I've done some 80 stuff on here, but like what, what would have been like your important soundtracks to you? Yeah. I mean, in preparation for doing this, I started thinking about, yeah, what if my whole life and it, what it led me to was this realization that so much of my earliest music exposure was because of film soundtracks, you know, like my, you know, growing up as a kid in the seventies and my parents weren't big music people. So I think about living, you know, my mom maybe had 20 albums and the ones that I can picture are the Sting soundtrack, 
the Butch Casting the Sundance Kid soundtrack and Jonathan Livingston Seagull, Neil Diamond. So I realized like, okay, those were the the albums that were playing in my house growing up. And that's how my parents got exposed to stuff. Like they weren't audiophiles. They didn't go out looking for albums. They'd go to the movies and then would pick up a soundtrack afterwards. And then, you know, when I started becoming a music freak, like the first obsessive sort of music passion that I got into was the Beatles. So when, you know, when John, when John Lennon was killed in 1980, my local Phoenix TV station played help. So I was aware of the Beatles before then, but I sat down and watched that and, you know, completely lost my mind for the Beatles. And so I bought the help soundtrack. So that was one of the first records that I bought. Anyway, you know, it's funny because, I mean, we could go do a whole sub spinoff about, you know, like the help soundtrack had one, one side of the album was the songs from the movie. The other half were the orchestral incidental music, which at the time I was just like, I, 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 uh, I mean, the, 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 in, in the UK, the help soundtrack has the music from the movie on side A and side B are just more Beatles songs, which I would have appreciated, but it was that help soundtrack, that US help soundtrack. So even though I never really listened to side B, that was my entry into Beatles albums. And then, you know, I, I went on over the, the next year to, to buy every single Beatles album that I could get my hands on. But it was that help soundtrack that kicked me off into the obsession that for the next like five years until I got into high school and started discovering other stuff. Like I was all about the Beatles and the, and the who, and then you know, that, I suppose that dovetails into why Rushmore was so important to me is that when I saw it, as much as I fell in love with the film itself, that choice of British invasion music really like meant a lot to me because that was my earliest sort of music rabbit hole. That's, so, that's actually tremendous. You know, it's, I always love hearing that sort of response on here because again, this is a show that posits that soundtracks were an important thing at one time. And, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a lot of people who, and I, I think it would be kind of interesting to, one day kind of put together a list from like previous guests even and myself of artists that we discovered through soundtracks i get this answer yeah. a lot people that were like oh yeah one of the big ones i think about sometimes is uh pete you know who pete yorn is of course love that first album yeah i still yeah, listen to it all the time yeah you know where i heard of him first was me myself and irene like oh, i would have yeah, yeah, yeah. Not known who Pete Yorn is. So there's like these artists. Well, the Farrelly's, are, yeah, yeah. The Farrelly oh, brothers uh, had good indie rock tastes because yes. uh, you go through Dumb and Dumber and there's some really nice tracks in there, indie indie music stuff. Uh, um, no, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, and then it, I, I'm trying to think now because now like we talk about it, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. I had the, like my first probably cassette was the Blues Brothers soundtrack. And I don't think I'd even seen the movie. And then, you know, heavy metal and fast times at Ridgemont High and Valley Girl. I may have had all those tapes before I'd even seen those movies. Uh, um, yeah, it, yeah. No, I, I'm realizing now that yeah, I was I had a lot of film soundtracks. Yeah, and that's... You know, what's funny is and that that what that leads to too is like it reminds me of how eclectic that can make your sensibilities in, in the best 
possible way. Like, you know, like in the, those 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 albums I'm listening to at my house in the '70s, uh, Marvin Hamlish, ragtime piano from the Sting, and that kind of Burt Bacharach stuff from Butch Cassidy. Like, I thought about. It. I was in the car with my daughter, who's 12, and we were the streaming uh, radio I have in my car has a '70s channel. And I swear, I think we were listening to the song that was on was like War Pigs, was like Black Sabbath, and we were rocking out. And the next song was The Entertainer, Ragtime Piano from from The Sting. And my my, it blew my daughter's mind that like, wait a minute, these were songs that you might hear on the radio at the same time in this period. And I was like, yeah, it's like in the 70s, you had all sorts of shit on the radio that because a movie was popular a song would end up on the radio, even though it had kind of no, bore no resemblance to anything else that was on the radio. And I don't think that kind of, there's no sort of mainstream music platform now that I don't think would throw you into such an eclectic uh, variety of sounds. I'm kind of surprised that, and I don't, maybe there isn't like a XM radio or something, but it seems like that would be, because I mean, goddamn, there's all kinds of, you know, I've been through, I know I've been, in cars with XM radio and you see these stations and there's like all this, I mean, there's so many and there's so many sort of like very weird, very niche. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm surprised there's not like a, uh, sounds from movies sort of station, you know, like, I don't uh, think there is. I was in a serious XM guy for nine years. Cause the car I, I, I drove and now I got a new car, which doesn't have serious XM, which breaks my heart. And that's a whole, another another thing but i have a different streaming service but yeah i i, I serious xm has a lot of niche channels but i don't think uh soundtracks is one of them maybe you uh maybe you could do something about that <laughs> yeah yeah um, but it's, yeah i mean it just it's just weird like i think about like i love hank williams senior but only ever was exposed to him because of the last picture show and i love um big band wartime 40s music because when i was in college i watched radio days over and over and over and yeah those are genres i just wouldn't have been exposed to if not for movies that i loved yeah. you know you you're, you got me thinking too like as, as a child of the 80s for me it was stuff like the breakfast club and you yeah. know what i mean like that kind of formed my yeah it just it is it is one of those things that uh you know it is unfortunate and they do. I mean, it's not that soundtracks don't exist. You know, um, there are certain. You know, Licorice Pizza has one. Uh, yeah. I actually just found out in like two months. My plan is to do the Nice Guys, and the Nice Guys has a soundtrack. Um, okay. You know, so they still exist for certain filmmakers that. Well, and Super Troopers too had one. Yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah, and we have a kind of you know semi soundtrack for Club Dread because we've got these these coconut peat songs and that's something i'm very proud of because well i wanted you know, to talk to you about that too we'll get to that in a little bit by the way sure 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 yeah yeah <laughs> the fact that i have even contributed to that it makes me very proud and the fact that i get publishing royalties for about seven dollars every year based on that movie also uh <laughs> cracks me up to no end but uh yeah it's funny i mean and we can maybe this will pivot us back to rushmore you mentioned licorice pizza which i just watched a week ago there's certainly you can connect a lot of dots between rushmore and licorice pizza. And I was curious if there's a soundtrack because I, I, you know, there's things I loved and didn't love about that movie, but I do think 
has one of the best needle drops in any movie I've watched in the last 10 years when um, the Paul McCartney let me roll it needle drop in that movie, I think is, is, is exquisite. And I hope, hope that's on the soundtrack. Well, and okay. Yeah. I guess, I guess this segues into this. So I wanted to talk to you about in, in the stuff you've done with broken lizard and things like watching the detectives that you've done outside of the group. Um, what kind of input do you have? Let's start with the broken lizard stuff. So, you know, like how does a song like uh stakes big bear, like, how does that, how does that, is there like a decision-making process? Cause I know oftentimes with a, with a film, the director, like that's pretty much their, their role. But I know that with broken lizard, you know, obviously Jay being the director for super troopers, but, all your stuff is a group effort. Is there any input from the group as to what songs do you have decide that in advance? Sometimes as you're writing, like this song would be perfect for this particular scene. And obviously with the thing like super troopers, when you, when you first made super troopers, you didn't necessarily have the like pockets to fund certain songs that you may have wanted within the movie itself. Yeah. The two parts of that, you know, yes. Like with all sort of, creative aspects of the broken lizard experience it's somewhat democratic um but that ultimately you know the buck stops with jay but in terms of music jay's awesome but often like he's kind of the last guy to come around on discovering (laughs) anything cool with music you know like (laughs) like i remember him like telling me about this band the strokes and i was like Jay, buddy, I've been listening to The Strokes for like seven years. Uh, 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 you know, so that's, he does need a little bit of um, hand-holding when it comes to like, oh, you know what? Here's some great music to put in that. So with with both with Super Troopers and, and the movie we made before, Puddle Cruiser, I remember different guys in the group saying, hey, you know what? You should try plugging this song in here. Um and in both cases, also what you would do, you know, you can, I think it still works this way, where if you're going to take a movie to a festival, so if you're doing a completely independent film, that you, I think, can either get festival rights, where it's super cheap, where you can plug something in to show it at a festival, and then if it gets picked up for distribution, negotiate a, a proper rate. So I remember doing that with Puddle Cruiser and with super troopers and then in both cases you know with puddle cruiser we only got this very minimal kind of cable distribution and with super troopers even though it was going to be a theatrical distribution with searchlight that they were like you're going to have to find more affordable stuff because i was thinking about it the other day like the opening of super troopers when you're just seeing the cameras down on the highway that was originally the needle drop was um fog hat i just want to make love to you and it was it fits it's so great i heard that i heard the song on the radio the other day and i was like ah this was <laughs> such a great it was such a great intro for that movie but at the end of the day we just couldn't afford it and we ended up you know i i'm i'm, I'm pretty pleased with where we landed because it was still Searchlight, it was still Fox, and we had some money and we were able to do that deal with 38 Special and they were able to plug in a lot of good, you know, they knew, you know, for, for that movie, we knew that sort of stuff along the lines of kind of, we wanted a Smokey and the Bandit feel, we knew that a lot of kind of Southern rock 
you know, we probably had the James gang in there. Um, you know, the stuff that we had initially wanted, uh, the guys from 38 special were like, okay, yeah, we, we get, we get what you were going for. You know, you, we, we're, we're Leonard Skinner adjacent. So we know that you, that would have been your dream. So we'll, we'll just try to create some stuff. So, you know, you, in, in that case, we just found what we could afford in terms of the needle drops and things like big bear. People were like, you know, we had a music supervisor who said, Hey, there's Southern culture on the skids. There, 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 there are indie bands that you can afford to get in there. So, um, but yeah, with puddle cruiser, the movie before we just threw, I think there was like, we threw the Rolling Stones in there. I was into uncle Tupelo. I think there, I, I, I had plugged in an uncle Tupelo song and we couldn't afford anything because of the distribution deal that we got. So that what we had to find was music companies that have bought rights for a lot of really obscure stuff. And you just pay them a flat fee. If you've got, you know, we probably only had $5,000, $10,000. And they said, okay, you just give us that and we'll give you our library. And so Puddle Cruiser ended up being populated with just they they sent us CDs of of stuff that they had bought, and you know worked out fine. But you know it was a little heartbreaking. Like I had pavement in there and stuff like that. Um, so you end up just kind of making do with what you can afford, based on what kind of distribution you get. But with watching the detectives, which was my first movie, like because I had loved Rushmore and because I had loved how integrated the, 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 those songs were, you know, like Wes Anderson was listening to those songs as he was writing. And so, you know, that's an amazing, and I don't even know if I can think of another case where the writer and director was actually writing to the, the music with songs in mind. But when I wrote watching the detectives, that's what I was doing. And I wanted it to have a fantastic indie soundtrack score. So I was writing to new pornographers and um, who else? Uh, um, Frank Black, the stuff that I was listening to at the time. And, you know, that only got a really small distribution. So I had to lose all that stuff. And, and I found stuff that worked. There were a few, there's some songs that I love that I came to love. Um, my music supervisor was like, okay, here's stuff that you can afford. And there's a, you know, pink mountain tops, uh, uh, really, uh, indie band, but that, that song in that soundtrack, and when there was no soundtrack, but that song used in the movie is one of my favorites. So, you know, you, you, when you're a, low budget, no budget filmmaker, you, you at least, you'll always have that version that was your first perfect dream version. But it is a shame when the reality of what you can really get in there doesn't work, you can't afford. And, and sometimes even if you have the money, you know, there are just artists who just aren't, aren't really interested. I mean, I think it's, you know, as I was doing some research on Rushmore, uh, it sounds like they really had to jump through some hoops to use Cat Stevens because at the time it wasn't about the money for him. He just, since his days of, you know, Harold and Maude had come around to feeling like it wasn't something he wanted to be known for. And they had to really sell him on the concept of, ah, this is a movie about a, 
a boy who loves his school. He loves his school more than anything else. And it sounds like that was how they cracked uh, uh, Cat Stevens into uh, allowing the songs to be used. You know, I don't think people realize <laughs> when I was in when I was in film school, um, basically one day a guy straight up <laughs> had a guest who worked in the industry who pretty much came into class and like borderline drill sergeant yelled at you about how that song you want in your movie you're never going to afford. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it was it was just it was such a funny day. He's like, that song? You're never gonna afford that song. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know, good for him, I guess, for making sure that filmmakers wouldn't be blindsided. But what I would say to young filmmakers is it's still awesome to envision your movie with those songs because it can inform how you write. And it's really cool to have that dream version. And I I also tell young filmmakers, you know, some version of that drill sergeant will come into your film school and say, you're never going to get this actor, so don't be an idiot. You're never going to, you know, Brad Pitt's not going to do your movie, so, you know, don't be stupid. But it, it actually helps if, if you are writing a script and the character comes alive for you by visualizing Brad Pitt, well, then you have to write it for Brad Pitt. And, and you know, knowing that there's a one in a million chance that you're going to get him, but but writing with an actor in mind, writing with a song in mind, I, I think is actually can be really helpful for finding your your voice for writing that character and finding the best way to describe, portray a world by thinking about the music. Um, you, don't, you don't want young people to get jaded. It's good for them to know you have to be a little realistic, but I do think he, it's, a good, it's good to create that way. And you're 100% right, because even beyond that, everything I've ever written that way, I've put the, I, you know, I institute whatever I would want my needle drop to be. So it, it, like you said, it, because it helps you kind of like, I guess, feel more lived in when you're writing it, you know, like you kind of can envision what you're writing. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I've written entire scripts where I just listen to one album over and over again. Uh, yeah, I wrote a horror thing for MTV and I, I was listening to a, a Grizzly Bear album the whole time. And I, I'm, I think that really like created a, a, a mood and a, and, a, and a world for that script that wouldn't have, wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. And the thing is, he wasn't like being a dick. He, he was he, he brought he brought up the Beatles a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he because I think at that point and I don't know if this was accurate, but I think he said it was like you really have to pay like a million to use a Beatles song in something you're writing or something that you're filming. Like, yeah, the royalties. So, yeah, that he, he mentioned the Beatles quite a few times during his little speech that he gave us that day in class. Yeah. <laughs> no, so like it's it's good it's good for people to to know that. But like, if that's you know the thing that like inspires you, like go ahead and pretend. You know, there's no yeah. there's no there's no harm in that. That's what we're doing, right? We're pretending. That's right. Uh, but uh, no, I mean it, it's to to pivot it back to Rushmore. Um, when I saw the movie, the lizards were all living in L.A. We were trying to get. Super Troopers made. We had made Puddle Cruiser because this is what ninety eight. Is that did you? Is that what you yeah. have for Rushmore? Yep. yep. So we had made a movie. It was getting us meetings in Hollywood, and we had the Super Troopers script, 
and we were going around trying to get it made and we were all crashing at a, at a buddy's house um, on Outlook Drive in, in the Hollywood Hills. And I remember because we were meeting at studios and production companies and meeting other assistants that that at some point some assistant handed us a VHS tape and said, you know, I got the new Wes Anderson movie. I, I ripped it, you know, I, 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 I ripped a VHS copy. There's a VHS copy that somebody at Touchstone. And I don't think I'd even seen Bottle Rocket. I think I had heard that this, but this, this was the new guy. And people, the young people of Hollywood, the kind of assistant class of Hollywood were so excited about this guy and were so excited about Rushmore that they were literally like, people were burning it and bootlegging it because they just had to share it. They were so excited about it. And I had a shitty copy. I remember sitting and popping it in at this house and it looked fucking horrible because it was like a third, fourth, fifth generation bootleg. And yet still I was like from that opening scene when it kicks into the montage of his activities and clubs with that creation song, I've just, I like, I like, I pulled up my chair as close to the TV as I could and was like, okay, this is like, this is just for me. Like somebody made this just for me because that's the kid that I was like, I was, I was a 15 year old in eighth grade. And I remember like, just being a little kind of more dorky. I mean, I was a good student, so I wasn't that like Max Fisher where like I loved everything but was good at nothing. But I remember being in eighth grade in Phoenix, Arizona and being obsessed with the Beatles and the Who. And I remember my social studies class, we, my teacher had, had taken like maternity leave. And so we had a long-term sub, like a two-month sub, who was like a young woman who I completely fell in love with. And I remember like she let us bring music into class and the other kids were bringing in. I remember like we were listening to the clash and rush and just what was, what was people were listening to at the time. And I brought in the Tommy, the soundtrack, another soundtrack. I brought in the Tommy soundtrack from the who and all the other students were like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) And I remember this, this, this substitute teacher that I had, a crush on came to me and like put her hand on my shoulder and was like, you were born at the wrong time. And I was like, (laughs) you understand me. Like I want to get married. Like we can, we run off and get married. And so imagine like (laughs) then seeing a movie about a 15 year old boy uh, uh, who seems to be born, not uh, he's not of his time. He doesn't quite fit in. And there is this young, beautiful young woman teacher so it just like never had a movie I had seen felt like it was written and created for me. So I lost my shit completely. And then when the movie then came out, I saw it over and over again. And then when that soundtrack came out, I just remember, you know, grabbing it and and listening to it over and over and over. Yeah, it's and it's a tremendous, you know, I hadn't not to get ahead of myself a little bit i hadn't listened to this soundtrack in a a while and actually hadn't seen the movie in a few years but um really glad to revisit it because it's yeah you know uh wes anderson particularly his early stuff is just i I just love it so much um 
Okay, we'll we'll get to the movie here in one second. I do have one last question for you in regards to uh like I said I was gonna come back to the club dread thing real quick. Yeah. Um so and anybody who's followed me on Twitter knows that like I'm a I'm you know obviously a broken lizard fan, but I'm like absolutely in love with Club Dread. It's my my favorite thing that you guys have done. And um, it, actually, it's funny. W- when we first started following each other on Twitter, it took me like two days to because I, I didn't I, I didn't want to seem like some weirdo fanboy, but I, would, I wanted to message you how much I like Club Dread. And one of the things that was in my head, and I don't remember who it was now, somebody on Twitter got followed by Ron Perlman and sent him a message where he was like, hey, I'm a big fan of your work. And Ron Perlman blocked him. So I was like, I'm <laughs> I don't want to be that guy, but I hate to hear that. I really hate to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love Ron Perlman. Well, you know, maybe he just didn't want some fun because it was like immediately after he followed him. He was like, hey, by the way, I just I love Hellboy. I love your work. And he's like, the next thing you went and checked Ron Perlman and blocked him. <laughs> well, just as a sidebar, and I know you're in the middle of a story, but I don't want to forget this because this is like brand new. I don't know if you're familiar with how like the new kind of Twitter sensation is that uh, Dick Butkus has joined Twitter mm-hmm. and is apparently awesome on Twitter. If that is in fact him, like I, I feel like among the broken lizard guys, there's some debate, like he can't possibly be this cool and funny on Twitter. It's Dick Butkus. But so yeah. we were in the middle of a writing session yesterday for Tacoma, me and Kevin Heffernan and some other people. And then Kevin Heffernan, all of a sudden just stops what we're doing and blurts out Dick Butkus just started tweeting about me. And we were like, what? <laughs> and sure enough, we go to Twitter and, and Dick Butkus makes a funny tweet about how like Ken, this, this dude, Kevin Heffernan has been basically playing some version of me for the last 20 years and seems to not be getting any older. And we were like, What? That's so awesome. Holy shit. And then Heffernan's like, okay, I'm going to respond. I'm going to respond. And we're like, okay, cool. And, and Heffernan responds. And then Butkus responds. And then we were, and this is all happening in real time in the writer's room. And, and then we start being like, okay, well tell him, like, ask him if he wants to play your dad on like Tacoma, or maybe he'll want to play your dad in Super Troopers 3. And the, but then we started talking about like, but also Kevin, we, we don't, like if you come on too strong, maybe he'll get freaked out and he'll like block you. So this is exactly what you were talking about. Like it's, there is that fear of like, okay, well you connect with somebody on Twitter and maybe you're a fan of theirs, but if you come on too strong, you might bring the whole thing down and it's like a new relationship. You're like, okay, I got to play this just right. So I totally understand what you're talking yeah, about you, you, going through this with Dick Butkus as we speak. You don't want to give off Hinkley vibes, you know? <laughs> exactly. You don't want to be a Hinkley. Uh, just to let you know, I fall on the side of I don't think that's actually him running that account. I It can't be. It can't be. No. It's like the Iron Sheik. Like, Iron Sheik doesn't run his account. But Does he also have a really hip and, and cool Twitter presence? Iron I mean, Sheik? That's debatable, but uh yeah some people really like it okay um but you know the sheik the sheik's had a really fucked up life and like there's no way that it's him that's like i've seen him on like howard stern and stuff and there's absolutely no way that that's him using that uh but but yeah uh so yeah i didn't want to come on too strong but i you know i sent you how much i like club dread and um, the question that I have is, so Club Dread has, there's a, as far as Club Dread goes, you have like the Club Dread soundtrack and then separately 
you have the coconut Pete songs on. Actually, I have the vinyl for <laughs> uh, one of those vinyl pressings of the coconut. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did, couldn't get the blood spatter one. So I have the, like it was like ocean blue or whatever, but what, right. what, what was with the decision to not include the coconut Pete songs on the soundtrack in general and just release it as its own thing. Now I'm glad you did because it deserves its own. Like it's in the movie, you've created this goddamn Bill Paxton where you get the whole thing about how good he is in that movie. And I'm sure yeah. you do. Um, what made you decide to release that as its own album? I realize it's like in the movie, he's this fictional, uh, you know, precursor to jimmy buffett um you know who had a string of albums so like did you just decide it would be more fun to release this as its own thing and did that come later than the soundtrack was that something you eventually did down the road i don't recall if that was like uh yeah it was it was down the road my recollection which is hazy so take it with a grain of salt i think when searchlight told us that they wanted to do a soundtrack. I just remember at the time feeling like, I I think they thought it would perform better as an honest to goodness soundtrack with that kind of Island reggae feel and that the coconut Pete songs were joke songs. And therefore I just remember feeling like they, they didn't think it made sense. Because we always loved the idea of exposing that music as much as possible because we were kind of proud of the fact that we had sat down and bastardized a handful of Jimmy Buffett songs. And then once they were performed by Paxton, we loved them even more. You know, I think we didn't... I don't think... I, I wish we'd had the confidence back then that we could have told them... No, if if somebody's buying this soundtrack, uh, they probably love the movie enough that they would love to also hear the Coconut Pete songs. And I think just that may have been one of those things we were still really green and didn't feel like that was a fight worth having. Uh, um, and you know, and and I suppose maybe it turned out okay because I think the licensing on those Coconut Pete songs we've been able to carve out ourselves. So then when we when we sell those. Uh, the coconut peat vinyl, it feels more like our own project, I suppose. Yeah. So like it worked out for the best of the, cause you know, the funny thing is, and I can tell you this cause there was at the time, not a physical way to get them, but I had like, I wanted them so badly that I had like found these, like, and I think somebody might've even just like recorded them, some of them off of like the, the goddamn TV when they were watching the movie, but sure. I had like LimeWire versions of coconut peat tracks. But then they, like, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really glad that it got its own in one way or the other physical release with those songs because they're, they're, you know, very funny and well-crafted and Paxton just like really, really put his all into those. Oh, he was so happy to do that. He, yeah. And that's, that, that was, I remember going in and recording with him being in those sessions and you know, it was me and Kevin and 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 Nathan Barr who had uh, done the scoring, and it just you know, it. There's so many moments I can be like, looking around and saying to one of the other guys, "Holy shit, look what what we're doing!" And that is another one of those moments where I remember being very aware at the time that we're 
it, you know, we'd gotten, we'd finally gotten past the fact that it was so amazing that we were made making a movie with Bill Paxton. But then it became this new epiphany of like, we're in a recording studio with Bill Paxton and he's recording songs that we wrote and they're goofy songs, but they're kind of fun songs or, you know, and I, like I said, when I get my publishing royalty check every year, uh, it for yeah, it really does fill me with a certain amount of giddy pride that I, I I've now created a cultural contribution as a musician by virtue of like I I wrote these songs that people love by this character uh, played by Paxton. So yeah, it, it, I get a huge kick out of that. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I just I wanted to check on that because I wasn't sure what if there was, and I didn't know, and that that's kind of what I assumed was maybe there was some sort of like fight's not the right word but like pushback about having them on the soundtrack itself but like i said worked out great in the end and i'm glad that like there's like this physical testament to the work you did and the work that paxton did that people can enjoy and get their hands on now so um all right well let's let's talk about rushmore here so just to give a little bit of background it debuted september 7th 1998 at the uh toronto international film festival and it made its theatrical debut december 11th 1998 now it only played in single theaters in new york city and la and the reason that that happened was because they wanted it to be eligible for academy award consideration particularly for bill murray um it eventually went wide release wider release in 103 theaters on february 5th 1999 which was at the time, that was always the planned release date before they did the whole Oscar consideration thing. Uh, and then it eventually expanded to a wide release of 830 theaters a month later on March 5th. It ended up being, you know, obviously a very large success critically and uh, financially as well. It made $19 million on a $9 million budget. And it wasn't one of those ones that they like pumped heavy advertising into where it was like a $20 million advertising budget. It did, it did very well. Um, the top 10 the first weekend of wide release. Now I'm going to go, since there's like three release dates here, I'm going to go with the February 5th when it got its like planned initial release date. So the top mm-hmm. 10 that weekend, Rushmore placed 13th with 1.8 million. Uh, rounding up the top 10 were number one was payback, which is, I, I, I know Mel Gibson's Mel, Mel Gibson. Gibson. Yeah. I love payback. <laughs> um, number two is she's all that. Okay. Number three is patch Adams. Okay. Number four is Varsity Blues. Wow. Okay. Number five was Saving Private Ryan. Okay. Yeah, this is, you know, this is the first in a minute for me where I I just did Married to the Mob last week and the top 10 was just a murderer's row of good shit. And when I did uh, Muppet Christmas Carol with Rachel, we talked about how, like, looking at these top 10s, like, look at what they've taken from us, basically looking at some of these. But this one was a bit of a, and especially when I get to this back half, I'll get to that in a second. So, um, number six was uh, Shakespeare in Love. A great movie, right? Yes. Now, the here's the thing. The entire back half of this, other than number 10, is pretty much comprised of movies that I don't remember existing at all. Um, <laughs> number seven is A Civil Action with John Travolta. Don't know that one. Is that a John Grisham kind of thing? Okay. It's like a, yeah, crying. I don't know if Grisham wrote it or not, but it's like, yeah, yeah uh, he plays a lawyer and yeah. Um Number eight is Stepmom with Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon, which maybe I'm a heathen for not remembering that one, but I don't. I remember the poster. That's it. Okay. Now, this one just fucking floors me, Paul. Um, number nine, Simply Irresistible, which is a movie with Sarah Michelle, a live action film. 
uh-huh. with Sarah Michelle Geller, and okay. it's about her playing a chef who finds a magical crab. Yes. <laughs> helps her skills improve and helps her find her true love. God, they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> I actually, I am going to watch that at some point just because I'm so curious. Do you imagine that the Robert Palmer song, Simply Irresistible, is in that? It or, has or to be. That? It has to be. That would be the biggest missed opportunity to not use that song. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure it's one of those cases where even if it doesn't, that the title was inspired by that. Because, like, for me, you know, what we talk about watching the detectives is that was a case where I was like, I wanted to name the movie after a song that I felt like encompassed the the what the movie was about. So I'm sure somebody at whatever studio that was was took that ridiculous uh, concept of a movie and, and was like, oh, we could name it after the Robert Palmer song. <laughs> well, it, you know, if they're affording Sarah Michelle Gellar in 1998, they certainly had the bankroll to, to, to put Simply Irresistible in that movie. So yeah. I can't see any reason that it's not in that movie somewhere. Yeah. Um, and then rounding up the top 10 was You've Got Mail. So pretty weak top 10, really, other than a handful, other than a few of them. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I... I Saving Private Ryan, that's a big, it's a big deal. But yeah, uh, Saving Private Ryan. I, I, okay. So I was the right age to like Varsity Blues, and I still enjoy Varsity Blues. But like, also concede that to anybody who wasn't born probably in like 1980 through 1982 would probably be like, this is stupid. (laughs) But I think about yeah, like of a top ten, I think I only saw three of those movies. So yeah, at least for where I was at the time, that was certainly not. A time that, yeah, that all, that was a a meaningful slew of movies to me, for sure. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, sometimes you're going to have that. And and, and the thing is, too, when you're talking February, I know, like, January is, like, your dump month a lot of times that they they always call it, like, the month that they kind of dump shit. And I'm sure when you're into the first week of February, you kind of run into that, too. It's funny when you look at those months, because you've got your December, like, Oscar, your you know, your, like, Academy Award hopefuls. Mm-hmm. And then this weird mix of those, like, you know, like, yeah, like Saving Private Ryan. And then uh, and then you've got your like ones that are like and that's not always the case. Obviously, there's plenty of the shit. Scream Scream 5 just came out in January, you know, and I really like that. Uh, it's not it's not always a dump month, but like that's kind of historically one of those things where they're like, we're just going to put this movie out quietly in January. And we're like, no, just no, getting been, first- look, having been the victim of like, I think Super Troopers was, I think, President's Day weekend. Um I so I we've definitely had at least a couple of dump month releases. Club Dread may have been a dump month release, also. So yeah, no, I get it. Well, I you know I saw both of the, I actually saw Super Troopers and Club Dread in theaters, and I'm trying to remember. I mean, there's no way. Fuck, how am I? I'm like acting like I'm going to remember when I saw it. There was like 20 goddamn years ago. Like, well, let me think what weekend that was and what month that was. But yeah, um, well, that, no, that's what I'm saying, though. The, the thing is, one studio's dump month is uh, another person's treasure a lot of times, too. You yeah. know what I mean? There's plenty of movies that have been released in January that like, yeah. So, but that's like I said, that's just like historically how that's known. I didn't mean to insult your. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, that's, you know. <laughs> you storm off. <laughs> I call, yeah, yeah. I've been through and I've come out the other end. All right. So, (laughs) all right. So uh, as far as some of the casting stuff goes, Wes Anderson had actually originally envisioned Noah Taylor for the role of Max Fisher, who Noah Taylor eventually ended up working with him in life aquatic. Um, (laughs) 
During casting, the filmmakers went to a bunch of New England private schools, mostly in Massachusetts, trying to find a student to play Max Fisher. Uh, Elijah Wood auditioned for Max Fisher. Um, and then Schwartzman, you know, who eventually got the role, he actually came to his audition wearing a prep school blazer, which sported the Rushmore patch, and he made that himself. Wow. Yeah. Um, on the first day of photography, Wes Anderson sort of was like really nervous to be around, not sort of, he was like extremely nervous to be around Bill Murray. Like he was like very hushed delivering direction and, uh, Murray straight up deferred like in front of the crew to him and helped him haul equipment. And, uh, when the, you know, like he, he just wanted to make him feel comfortable because he was very, Murray was going to do this movie for free when he read the script. And, yeah. um, there was a part when Disney denied a helicopter scene that would have cost $75,000 and Murray actually covered that whole thing out of pocket. Uh, also a funny thing, Bill Murray genuinely found the kids who play his sons in the movie annoying in real life. And so when he's lashing out at them, most of the insults he's throwing at them are improvised. <laughs> he didn't like Schwartzman at first either, but apparently they warmed up to one another pretty quickly. Um, so the speech that he gives is Herman Bloom at the beginning about, you know, going after the rich kids. Uh, that was actually inspired by a real speech once given by Robert Wilson, who is Luke and Owen Wilson's father. Okay. Uh, Wes Anderson, when he was sort of trying to get the movie hyped up, he did it the old fashioned way. He actually traveled across the country in a tour bus with two big screen TVs, two VCRs, a CD player, cell phones and a satellite dish and a Sony PlayStation. And uh, this largely was because he hates flying. Um, and then two, two other things here is uh, in the shot of there's a part, you know, when Max's petition to save Latin, the names on the petition are of his phantom planet bandmates who at the time he was in phantom planet as the drummer. Okay. They're they're Phantom planet is actually very good, uh, but they're mostly famous for the theme song for the OC. Really? Uh, California. Yeah. They're a great. Oh, the guest is a phenomenal album, Paul. Um, okay, very I'll write that down. Yeah. That's actually, I just to spoil, th spoil things. It's in my recommendations at the end when I do my like further listening, further watching. And then the last thing is, and I did not notice this actually, even now I didn't notice this when I was putting these together. I, I put the notes together after I watched it and kind of came with these trivia things. So I watched it a few nights ago. Um, Alexis Bleedle is actually, I don't know if I said her name right, is actually in the movie as an extra, basically she's like a background student in the class, but this is like the first movie she was ever in. It's funny. I, I think that when I watched it yesterday, cause it must've been when he goes to Grover Cleveland, when he goes to public school, because my daughter is obsessed with Gilmore girls. So I've been watching a lot of Alexis Bleedell, Blydell, Blydell. <laughs> uh, but it's funny. I think there was a part of it that my, in my mind, I was like, huh, that kind of looks like her. Huh. And then it kind of moved on, but that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Well, when right. We talk about Schwartzman. I, I had forgotten that when we talk about Sirius XM Radio, he he hosts his own show. Um, that's a great show because he has great tastes also, and he plays a lot of cool eclectic stuff. Um, he has like a once a week show on the uh, indie music channels. Well, he actually, after he left Phantom Planet, did a solo thing as Coconut Records was the name yes. of. Yep. Yeah. So. And like West Coast is a really pretty song. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Schwartzman, you know, okay, j just a little off topic before we get into Rushmore. But at one time, they were going to make a uh, movie about Keith Moon, uh -huh. and they chose at the time 
the person that was going to play Keith Moon was Mike Myers, which used to infuriate <laughs> me to no end because if you pull up a picture of Keith Moon and Jason Schwartzman, yeah, who might I add is also a goddamn drummer, they right, are right, right. very they look. I mean, I don't. It's like one of those things where I was like, why would these idiots? I mean, why why Mike Myers when like you've got Jason Schwartzman right there who literally looks like Keith Moon and is a drummer, right? So anyway, yeah, yeah, Schwartzman's great. I don't know if do you watch Righteous Gemstones? No, but you know what? I'm so sick of everybody telling me that it's great that I will definitely watch it. Uh, start <laughs> well, watching it in the next couple weeks. He he appeared in a cameo at the beginning of this season. I was really happy to see him pop up. He's one of those guys that yeah, I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of Jason Schwartzman. So okay, so the movie itself, you know, I think the movie, I like I love Bottle Rocket too, but I feel like this movie is where he really came into his own for better or for worse. I love Wes Anderson. There are a lot of people who do not particularly care sure, for like sure. the style that he's cultivated. And I get that, but you know, I feel like the opening shot of this movie that, that just the, the shot of that painting of Bill Murray and his family and like that goddamn look on Bill Murray's face in that painting. Um, yeah. With a cigarette like in just, his mouth. Yeah. Yes. This is where Wes Anderson truly, figured himself out i feel like and you can see it from like the very first frame of this movie yeah the difference between i think yeah visually aesthetically between bottle rocket and and rushmore is pretty stark and i think only embraced that aesthetic and that tone more and more and as we talk about his career to me i think that's that's what is understandably frustrating for a lot of people that I would say, like, it's beautiful and brilliant in Rushmore. I think it's absolutely perfect in Royal Tenenbaums. And then, to me, it's, I don't want to say diminishing returns in further movies, but it almost, it spins, I think, so far away from being interested in appealing to its audience that it now, I just be, I think it became inaccessible. His, his, that that form of art that he decided to keep going deeper and deeper into. And so to me, it's just each of those movies became less and less accessible. And I still like them. There hasn't been one that I haven't liked, but I mean, I just, I, I, I it just feels like it's spun so far away from being interested in actually entertaining a normal audience. Well, okay. You know what? It's funny that you say that because I actually like I got my notes in front of me and a couple of things down. I had, had this whole little thing and you pretty much just touched on how I was going to say this. You know, I, I, you know, I like Bottle Rocket a lot, but I think again, for me, his like streak of just like can't miss was uh, Rushmore through Life Aquatic. Now, yeah. So to me, you know, I can differentiate between the two and I don't know if this makes sense, but his his to me, his best movie is. Royal Tenenbaums, but my personal favorite is Life Aquatic. If, you know, I don't again, I don't know if that makes sense. Wampler probably would have let me have it for saying that because I said something similar during Lost Highway, and he was like, "What does that mean?" But um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, you know, Rushmore, even Bottle Rocket, I've watched a few times, but Rushmore, Life Aquatic, and Royal Tenenbaums are all three of those are movies that I have watched multiple times over the years. Um. Anything beyond that, like I have liked every Wes Anderson movie that I've seen. There's not been one that I've been like, I didn't care for that one. But 
there's not been one that after it's over, I've been like, I got to rewatch that sometime. And I haven't yeah. everything beyond those three. I have never watched more than once. And I still like them. Like grand Budapest hotel was a, I really liked, but I just have no desire to watch it a second time. Yeah. So exact same, exact same for me. Uh, um, and you know, I started to rewatch Rushmore with my family two weeks ago. And I was amazed how quickly everybody bailed on me. And it is a funny thing. My wife pointed this out and I think I didn't want to hear it, but she's not wrong. It, It does have thematically a certain dated quality that I think is probably making it hard to connect. You know, when you look at it, it is, a rivalry between a 15 year old boy and a what 50 year old man mm-hmm. for the, to, to, to win over a woman for whom it is incredibly inappropriate for either of them to be pursuing. And, you know, as times have changed, I mean, again, we can talk about licorice pizza and, and is, is the, is the trope of the teenager who pursues his older woman crush is, our audience is just not interested in that. And the fact of like a married man and Bill Murray now pursuing a, a, a younger woman, um, does that feel tone deaf now? I don't know. I just, I rewatching it. I loved it for all the same reasons that I loved it originally, but it was, there was something interesting about watching it with my wife and my kids who just, there was no point of connection with, with, with my kids. they, <laughs> like my son and he, yeah, I thought, you know, my son is 15 years old. So I'm like, okay, well surely he will. It's a movie about a 15 year old boy. And I, it reminded me how much to my chagrin, my son is more like Bill Murray's sons. We were talking about like my son is a jock <laughs> and is an idiot. And <laughs> like, that's who he is. And so he was like, what is this boring movie? And my daughter didn't, couldn't make sense of it. And my wife was like, and there's a weird kind of sexism going on here. Um, so I will say it, it was interesting to rewatch it after years and years and years and say, I still think it's great, but I can't imagine necessarily a modern audience loving it the way that we loved it. That's a very good point. And honestly, that is something I had not, obviously the stuff, but I feel like the stuff with Schwartzman and her was always like creepy ish, but yeah, it, it hasn't that whole, as you said, thematically, it has not necessarily aged very well. And I, I guess I hadn't even considered that watching it though. Like, and I think it's, it's on my mind. Sorry to cut you off. But I think it's also was on, was, was top of mind for me because I had just watched licorice pizza and I was super excited to watch it because of the critical gushing and I watched it and I, and I liked it. But as the more I kind of asked around talking to non-critics to just people, a lot of people just got snagged on like, eh, I don't want to watch a a teenage boy trying to win over an adult woman. Uh, um, That that's just now that kind of unlikely different generational romance Harold and Maude, I think we is, is probably just not that compelling to audiences now. Well, and especially with like, there is, I mean, one thing in the last couple of years that has really taken off is uh age gap discourse, you know, like, like 
between couples. Um, yeah. So that's that's something, especially with the younger generations, that they're very uh, aware of. And yeah, I guess that I could see somebody who's like Gen Z or whatever watching this and being like, "This is just gross." <laughs> like, yeah, in, or just just way. not like not able to get fully invested in in the romance. Um, and I think it's the the same way that I just feel like everybody that I talk to even if they appreciated all the aesthetics of licorice pizza kind of just came down. I've just felt like I heard the same feedback over and over again. I just, I couldn't get invested in rooting for this, you know, inappropriate age gap romance. But I, I feel like it helps, you know, like you're okay. So like the introduction to Max, I think part of what helps is that you, they let you know immediately that Max is a fucking weird kid. You know, yeah. like his, the perfect introduction to him where he's imagining himself as this hero in his dream by solving a math problem, which actually now to me, I'm, I'm a math idiot, especially, well, throw numbers at me. I'm okay. But you start throwing like letters and shapes. I'm, you, I, I'm checking out immediately, but that sure. apparently that hardest problem in the world on the board is like for high school level. Yeah, it would be tough, but it's pretty much a standard college level sort of problem. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So it's even funnier that like in his dream, he's the hero for solving this math problem like i feel like it does help that outside of rosemary this film is populated by weirdos <laughs> yeah 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 I, so, weird dudes yeah it's a lot of weird dudes yeah so i feel like that sort of i don't know dulls that edge a little bit that the creep factor is that these two men vying for her attention are like extremely weird people <laughs> Yeah. And again, I just, it just, it may be, you know, like I said, because I distinctly remember being a 15 year old eighth grader who felt like I was in love with my teacher, who was a woman in her twenties and it, it resonated with me. And so it's, you know, even beyond whether it's sort of on paper appropriate or not, I just, it's more about audience just saying, ah, eh, I can't root. Like I can't, I can't lose myself in, in, in this, but I, I don't know. Like I, 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 I wouldn't, I would not hesitate to recommend it to anybody, but I would be curious to see like, would your average movie goer now, if you sat them down and they'd never seen this, would it sort of translate? Would it be as charming? I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, well, okay. So we've got to talk about Brian Cox a little bit, just as mm-hmm. you know, uh, so Brian Cox, obviously you have probably quite a bit of a, you know, input here, but okay. So Brian Cox has always been for years, a, you know, I mean, all the way back to Manhunter, like he's always been this like incredibly sturdy character actor, but how crazy is it in this, with the success of succession that he is at this point become like a household name that like you, you know what I mean? Like everybody knows him now. Everybody knows who Brian yeah, Cox yeah. is now. And, you know, it's just, it's really cool to see him go from, yeah, I mean, it's gotta be awesome for you to see that for him. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And also, you know, what's funny is that as a guy, you know, like I'm 52 and to see an actor, you just, it's Hollywood. So I think to me, like, you know, like we made a broken lizard movie at the end of last year. And the whole, I spent the whole time being like, I'm just amazed that anybody would want to make a movie with 
50-year-old dudes in it. So just the idea that you can be an actor and have this trajectory where you're a sort of steady, you know, regularly employable character actor who can then explode at a later stage of his or her life. I, I just, I think that's cool. And it gives me, you know, gives me some, <laughs> some hope as I'm like, okay, how much longer am I going to be employable? But it's super cool. And it's super cool. Just yeah, watching a guy that I know who, you know, we were a fan of his work before we worked with him in super troopers just to see like audiences being made aware of what he's capable of, which is amazing. You know what? While we're on the subject, what was the process of getting him for us? Because again, Broken Lizard was uh, at that point not a like a, you know like a well known comedy troupe. So like, no, was not at all. Getting him involved, did he just like maybe was he did he take to the script? Because I've seen interviews with him where he's talked about the Super Troopers movies, and he like always like chuckles and laughs as he's talking about. You know, you can tell that he thoroughly enjoys both of those movies and the time that he had making them. Yeah, we had made one movie that did festivals and, you know, got a little bit of a cable release, but certainly we weren't on the map as an entity at all. And, you know, it took us years and years to finally get somebody to write the check for Super Troopers. And it was, you know, it was small. It was, low, it was, it was low budget. I feel like it was probably one and a quarter million. And so we had money to cast and we wanted somebody who was a real actor for O'Hagan. And what's funny was because of Rushmore, we wanted Bill Murray. Uh, and, you know, he, he has only become like, you know, he's more legendary about being like an odd duck to try to get a hold of and work with. I mean, the, the, I remember at the time it was like, well, what you do is he, he, he doesn't have an agent. He just kind of has one person and you just, they don't even answer the phone. Like you can get this phone number and you call and you leave a message and hopefully this person will let you send them a script and send it to Bill. And, you know, depending on what the budget is, he's just as likely to do a, a, a movie with no budget as, as a, as a movie with a hundred million dollar budget. And it was sort of like, Hey, just take your crack as who the hell knows, but it's a weird Byzantine process and you may not even get any feedback for a year or, or even never. So that was the first avenue that we pursued. And I think after a year, well, I'm trying to think, we had the money. So we probably bailed after a couple months because we, we didn't want to wait forever and lose the money. And then started thinking of other character actors. And I think that the agency, his agency actually reached out to us because basically anything, any script that's got financing you know, you can send it around to the agencies and, 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 and they'll assign somebody to, to look at their roster and say, okay, do we, do we offer up this person? And what we had heard at the time was, hey, guys, Brian Cox's agent reached out to us because he really wants to do something off brand for what he's done. I mean, Rushmore was the only thing we could think of that was even light at all for him and that everything else was really pretty serious, really pretty heavy. Um, and we, you know, primarily he was on our radar screen from Manhunter. So we were contacted by his people and, and we're like, fantastic. Are you serious? We, we, we love the guy and, and we loved the idea of having 
a real actor because we were like, we're not actors. We're just, we're sketch comedians who are just going to hopefully show up and hit our marks and, and, and say funny things. So it'll probably help the movie to actually have somebody who's an actor in it. And uh, yeah, that's how it worked out. And, you know, he was incredibly patient about the fact that we, you know, we just didn't, we didn't have shit. Like we didn't have trailers. We, you know, when, when, when Brian was done with his, uh, his coverage, he like sat in a van, you know, and that's like, it's incredible now, you know, cause I think I'm probably the, the age that he was when he did super troopers and I'll, I'll do some indie films and I, you know, I'll be, I'll get cranky if like they don't have coffee, if they don't, <laughs> if I don't have at least a room where I can go sit down and we didn't have shit for him. I and mean, it really was like, okay, um, Brian, can you just, hang out on the side of the road and we'll get back to your coverage in I don't know, two hours, three hours. And, and you know, that's unthinkable. You just don't, you don't do that to any actor, let alone an established, you know, serious dramatic actor. And the fact that he didn't walk off still amazes me and that he had good humor about it and, and that he would come back and do a sequel still blows us away. And I think, you know, what was cool was that, you know, I didn't see him again for maybe 10 years after the movie came out. And I randomly ran into him in LA and, and I, I, you know, I I was very sheepish in how I approached him and said, hi, Brian, I'm sure you don't remember. I'm, I'm Paul. I'm one of the guys from super troopers. He was like, are you kidding me? He said, I, I, like most of the time I get recognized (laughs) from super troopers. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So yeah. That's that. No, it's awesome. It's awesome. Hopefully, you know, if you can get him, if you can get him back for part three, you you should try to do it the same way you did with part one. Don't let him have a trailer and see how long yeah. it lasts. But he's, <laughs> that is the thing is that the, the the difference between and some of that was the time difference between Super Troopers one and two and how that translated into his age difference, even though we had a much bigger budget and we had proper amenities for him for super troopers too. He was a lot more cranky about those kind of things in the second movie to the point where he said to us, like I'm in for three, but literally you guys will have to find a way to write that. I'm like, I'm trapped in a chalet, uh, uh, snowed in in a chalet so that I have one location and, you know, maybe uh, you guys can FaceTime me or, you know, or whatever. Like he was, he was already saying that basically the the a lot the the level of comfort that he would need to do a third movie with us was gonna we'd have to creatively figure out some solution that we wouldn't have to ask anything of him because <laughs> he actually he said uh, he doesn't shoot nights now um, he really hates it and I understand uh, like yeah. shooting nights is rough on you when you get to a certain age and we you know, based on the script for super troopers too, we had to require him to shoot nights and he, he fucking hated it. He really, (laughs) he, he let us know and, you know, in, you know, good natured way, but like, yeah, his good humor and good patience definitely had an expiration date, a ticking clock when we were doing night shoots. (laughs) So when super troopers three comes out, you may notice that. Yeah. Captain O'Hagan only appears during the day like a reverse vampire and does not come out at night. If, if you notice that in the movie, it is now you'll know why. Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm really glad that he's down for the third one though. That's, 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 that's tremendous that, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I've seen him in interviews 
where he's talked about super troopers and it seems like he loves the role and that he had a good time doing it. So I would assume that he would have come back for three, but like I said, he is a, you know, he's, he's become a household name now and that's yeah. really fucking cool though. Cause I've liked him for like you guys, I've liked him for a very long time. So it's really cool to see him have this, you know, where like, yeah, like my mom could name him by name, not as opposed to being, Oh yeah, that guy from super troopers or manhunter, like, you know, she, like she knows, Oh, that's Brian Cox. Like it's cool. Oh yeah. And it's, you know, what was heartbreaking is when we were shooting super troopers too, I had this script called a nasty piece of work that I showed him and he loved it and he helped me develop it. And he said, yeah, I want to, I want to do this. Uh, let's see if we can cast it together. And, and, and he and I spent about a year trying to get that movie set up and it just, we couldn't land enough other big name actors to get it done. And then I got a call that Blumhouse was interested in, in putting the script in there into the dark anthology series, um, which was too low budget and didn't work for Brian's schedule. He was already on succession at that point. So we made it for Blumhouse um, with Julian Sands playing the role that uh, Brian Cox was supposed to play. And Julian did a good job, but it was, it'll I'll go to my grave being like, God damn it. This, this would have been the highlight of my career to have this script that I wrote made starring Brian and, and, and some other big name actors. So, you know, I don't want to bitch cause it's a, it's a project that got done, but man, I was super excited thinking that, that he was going to uh, star in this movie for me. Well, and it's funny. You also, you must've squeaked that in. Was that, did you film that before Shit's Creek had come out because Ted from Shit's Creek yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Dustin Milligan. No, I, it was, I think we shot that just when Schitt's Creek was uh, popping for American audiences. Cause it had, yeah, it had had this sort of first life in Canada. So yeah, Dustin, I, yeah, I hadn't watched Schitt's Creek uh, when we did Into the Dark. I just saw his audition and thought he was awesome and he was awesome and then came to be a fan of his through Shit's Creek, which I watched after. Yeah. And those two roles couldn't be more different. Like the I know, type of character I know. he's playing. And it really kills me. I mean, he's, I think he's good in Shit's Creek, uh, um, but he, I don't think he's given a, a ton to do. Um, and I really like the role that he had in a nasty piece of work. Where yeah. I think he got to really have a ton of fun. And that also, I mean, I, I know that he has a, I think an NBC show, but he's one of those guys who now I'm like, oh, why isn't this guy a gigantic star? Yeah. Well, and you know, look at Brian, maybe it'll happen. Exactly. For him when he... <laughs> okay. When I promise. I, I promise we'll stick to Rushmore now. I just like this, you know, I had to talk to you about Brian. Of it's, course. Um, so yeah. And then Brian Cox in this, you know, as Guggenheim, it's a, it's a small role, but he gets some very funny lines, but I do love, uh, when him and Max are first talking and he's, he's trying to be patient with him. For, <laughs> and, uh, I don't want to, he's when he said, I don't want to tell you how to do your job. It, <laughs> I, I just that, that scene kills me. It really kills me. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times in college I wanted to say, couldn't we just let me float by for old times? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and then you're introduced to Bill Murray and, 
one of the first things you see with him is that relationship that he has with his kids, which knowing that he didn't like those kids makes it even funnier now. But like mm. that goddamn shot when they turn the air conditioner on in his car and it blasts his hair uh-huh. back. Like, <laughs> 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 well, the, and this movie is stacked with like speaking of character actors like Brian Cox. Um, I just uh, like a month and a half ago did Dead Presidents and we had to talk about how good Seymour Cassell has a very small role in that movie. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. He's just, he was one of those guys that was such a great presence and he just is the best like sweet old man like, mm-hmm. actor in the entire world. Like, because, you know, he's so patient with Max. <laughs> he, oh, yeah. he, he's just so loving and patient with his somewhat dipshit of a son. <laughs> yeah. And what I love, I think it's part of what charms me is that I, I feel like, like 99% of writers would have made it so that Max Fisher does not have a great relationship with his dad. And that is what informs his attraction to Bill Murray. It just feels like that could have easily been where that goes. And then, and, and it, I love that that was the choice was no, this weird kid who is looking for a friendship with a 50 year old man happens to also have, a very sweet father who, who though, even though Max is not particularly proud of is very sweet and supporting and loving with him. That's a good point too, that, that I hadn't considered that. The, yeah. I feel like a lot of other writers would have taken the opportunity to make his dad be like a shithead. Yeah. It just, that feels like that would have been the kind of obvious choice. And, and I, I, I did really appreciate that they did not go that way. Well, and you know what? There's a lot of that in this movie. Like early on, you know, we talked about the creepiness of the age difference thing, but like early on, and it's a lot of this is on Schwartzman. Schwartzman sort of pulls off a very tricky role here at the beginning, at least prior to him completely losing it when Herman and Rosemary uh, meet. But, you know, it would have been easy to make his early stuff be right from the get go. It'd be like, he's a little creep, but there's like this, he does pull off this sort of like childlike innocence that in their early interactions, mm-hmm. it, it avoids that. I feel like until later when he becomes like super obsessive, really? when it's like a, a kitty crush, like it, yeah. you know, and Schwartzman could have played that as like, he's creepy immediately. Yeah. And I think that's, what's so funny about that first uh, uh, Max and Rosemary meeting on the bleachers is he is very much approaching it as how would a gentleman uh, speak to this woman, you know, the lighting the cigarette and then going back to his, uh, uh, to, uh, his step, you know, like not being very tentative to sort of keep these boundaries that it, yeah, it makes you like him in spite of the fact that you like, you know, what he's doing is, yeah, you know, uh, is essentially a, a, a creepy thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then I love the early interactions. Like, you know, you know where it's going, that there's going to be this conflict and you're pretty sure that in the end they'll be friends again. But like, I love the early bits with Max and Herman's friendship is also very like, you know, you can tell that Herman like is is trying to look out for Max. You know, like there's there's a uh, it could have been easy to make Herman like a shithead as well. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. could have been an easy way to go with it. And he, 
Now, to an extent, he is. But again, they're both characters that have enough good sides that it wins out in the end that, like, you're rooting for both of them (laughs) to to at least have some sort of happy ending. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love, like, the early parts with... uh, I mean, Bill Murray's so good in this movie. The the, you know, her asking about Nam, were you in the shit? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was in the shit. I was yeah. in the shit. But <laughs> I just love you. You posted the a bit from it yesterday when I was talking about doing the show. The part with him at the pool where he's just this sad sack, depressed, yeah, old man jumping into the pool with a fucking cigarette in his mouth. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's funny. I do remember, like, it was the one moment of the movie seeing it for the first time being like, well, yeah, but this is also, they did this in the graduate. Um, we have Benjamin Dustin Hoffman going into the pool. Okay. Like I was starting to think, Oh, is this going to be like reservoir dogs where this is put together with moments from other older, great movies. But I think that's the only beat in that movie where I feel like he kind of borrows a moment, but it's still a fantastic moment. And, and as we talk about, the music, that Kinks song in there mm-hmm. does a fantastic job of keeping it in tone with the movie. But like, it's sad. It, it is, you know, you, you need to establish that this guy is lonely and has an unsatisfying relationship and is, has probably been sort of neglected. And that song does a huge amount of the heavy lifting that you need so that you can get on board with, Bill Murray, a man, whatever, 50 in his 50s now pursuing a, a a much younger woman. Well, and you know, that's Wes Anderson was, again, as we talked about with this, especially with his early movies, was very good at threading that. And I think Royal Tenenbaums is where he like really nailed it the most. But this combination of these movies that are like off kilter, sweetly funny, and also sweetly sad on the other side of the, not yeah, even sweetly, yeah. but so oftentimes just sad, you know, he he's very good at at juggling that or he was at least with these movies because there's another great moment um towards the end like one of the sweetest moments in the movie is when max dedicates that final play to his mom and they show bert in the crowd mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. like smile that he gives like you know he gives these he, he it would be easy to just do like these sort of madcap comedies but he grounds them with these very sweet moments and i i just yeah like i wish that he was still as adept as he was when he made real tenenbaums at pulling that off i guess yeah yeah absolutely and i mean he's a he's a brilliant artist but i miss yeah i miss that because he obviously he has it in him to do stuff that resonates a little more instead of just being so baroque and so arch that you really feel like you're looking at it as a, an interesting piece of art and not like something that really you feel on a gut level. Yeah. Well, and then, and then on top of that, he can do these very broad comedy moments like the, the okay, well, the student production of Serpico is mm-hmm. just such a the, uh, conceptually, that is such a fucking screamingly funny idea, a student production of Serpico. Yeah. And the, the whole scene, I mean, Immediately following that, when he meets Peter and like, <laughs> who's this guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! I like the nurses, nurses uniform guy. Right. And again, like he is such a fucking jerk throughout that whole sequence. And if you hadn't established him in his weirdness, in his loneliness, you know, like that can 
that can put you off a character completely, especially at the dinner table, drinking the whiskey and soda. I, I laughed so hard at it last night, but I was like, I can only laugh at it because I get the sadness behind this kid and his, the fact that he's, you know, he's just such a sort of a, a, a misfit that, yeah, it'll, it'll, it allows you to get past that. He's, he's such a shit in that scene. Yeah. What? And you also get to see Herman trying to be somewhat protective of him. And it's Bill Murray kills those lines too. When he's like, take it easy, Max. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. he's, oh, everything's going bad. <laughs> he just sees that the plane is about to crash into the mountain at this dinner. Um, but you know, that then it immediately segues to the next scene where, you know, like you said, Herman's a sad character, but you see from the next scene too that his pursuit of Rosemary is almost as creepy because he's like standing from afar, watching her from behind a tree. Oh, behind a tree, yeah, and then runs away, yeah. <laughs> Which is very funny, but like you know, if you look at it, for, take a few steps back and look at it, it's it's creepy as shit. <laughs> no, it is, and that's I think that's what I, I think is like that kind of stuff. We're just now too sensitive about those kind of dynamics between characters between people in real life uh, um but it's you know still so funny to me in the moment well and another i'll tell you another part that just kills me is you know he gets booted out of rushmore and that shot of him first of all that he's wearing his rushmore uniform in the public mm-hmm. school really funny <laughs> there there is a tremendous i'm a huge fan of like when somebody can make something hilarious with like timing on an edit and for me in this, it's when he gets up and gives that heartfelt speech. And the next shot is that quick cut to the class, looking the bell ringing at everyone immediately. Just like they're <laughs> like, everybody's like on the edge of their seat. And as soon as the bell rings, they're just quietly walking out of the room. It's just such a funny, like cut from that speech to that moment. Is, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. And another moment where like another filmmaker would have the students laugh at him or like, a spit wad flies into frame and hits him in the face or <laughs> he gets like pushed down. And, but to me, it's so much more effective that they're just like, you just see the bell rings and these kids are just like, all right, I'm fucking out of here. You know, <laughs> and it's, it's such a better decision. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is when it starts to f- become uncomfortable with Max though. Like where he talks about, yeah. Rosemary giving him a hand job, and then the next scene, he it, and it's still fun, like when he's apologizing to her, and uh, in the middle of his apology, he just refers to Pete as what's his name, like he knows his name. Yes, <laughs> what's his name? Oh, he um, does it throughout that scene, the previous scene too. Like she has introduced him multiple times to Max, and then when Herman comes up, Max says to Herman, "And I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't uh, catch your name." And you're like, I laugh so hard, I'm like. He said his name twice to you. You know his name, Max. You know his name is Peter. And then, the, um, and then at the dinner table, he calls him Doc. He calls him Curly. I mean, it, it just, he's such <laughs> a fucking douchebag. And yet it kills me. It kills me every time. Well, and I, the little, there's an, another little touch that cracked me up this time too, is the implication that Max is capable of doing a back handspring all the way down the side of a basketball. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Um, which is funny. Cause it is, you know, we've seen this separation. Okay. There is this fantasy version of Max, which exists in his head from the opening scene. But then when you get out into the real world, Max is only ever 
you know, sort of inept. And then yet you do have him as the Grover Cleveland owl mascot doing something that, yes, we know he cannot do. And yet we're not watching a fantasy. It's, it's, it's a funny, yeah, it's a funny choice. <laughs> uh, I had paid attention to this line delivery because one of my friends that I was talking to when I said I was watching this said it's like his favorite line. And it is a very funny delivery is when Max or not Max on Herman and Rosemary are out front. She got that plate of carrots mm-hmm. and she's like, would you like a carrot? The way Bill Murray says, yeah, I'll have one of those. <laughs> Um, oh, and then and then you got the whole thing with Dirk, who the kid that plays Dirk was previously most famous for playing Dennis the Menace in the movie with Walter Matthau as oh, Mr. Okay. Wilson, which, I, you know what? I saw that movie back when it came out. I remember thinking it was really funny, but that's when I thought like Walter Matthau doing the splits and water on the floor in a bathroom was like the funniest sure. thing I've ever seen. Sure. I was like 14 years old. Um, but the kid that plays Dirk is very funny on this is like when he comes up and strong arms Herman and spits on his fucking car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which then is followed up by Herman and the, the, the unlock it <laughs> being able, yeah. Being locked out of the car. It, it's <laughs> yeah. And then, and then that letter that Dirk's right, Dirk writes to, to Max saying that Herman and his mom were in the pool, giving each other hand jobs. <laughs> right, right. Skinny dipping while Max took a nap out front. Uh, <laughs> and he's writing this in crayon. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> well, that touches on something like at that particular age i think every kid for us when i was like that age the thing that we all thought was funny in elementary school or whatever like fifth sixth grade that no one really understood was the term like popping the cherry we had no idea what it meant but we thought it was like that we knew it was dirty and we thought it was like the funniest thing in the world and i feel like that touches on i think every kid has that you know like there's like there's like something at the kids at like elementary school that one kid picked up from their older brother you know like the word come or something, you know, don't really know what it means, but like, it becomes a, like a thing that kids at the elementary school think is like the funniest thing in the world, just because they know they're not supposed to say it. So him's not quite understanding the concept of a hand job by saying that they were giving each other hand jobs. Oh yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's, it reminded me of like, like Ralph Wiggum. Like I, I saw a uh, principal Skinner in the closet and they were kissing <laughs> and a baby came out. Like it just, <laughs> a kid just throwing out every bit of like half, truth unknown sort of concepts and expressions that 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 they've been exposed to without understanding what any of it means yeah <laughs> and i okay so i do love like i said as much as i love the parts where they're friends that montage of their escalating wars it's probably my favorite scene in the movie when it culminates with him cutting his fucking brakes which is just like like he yeah. literally tried to kill him <laughs> yeah and that shot of the groundskeeper slowly backing away from Mr. Herman's Little Jean, just yeah, not getting out yeah. of the way, just backing away, still raking actually. I think as as he does it. <laughs> uh, but again, the you know the who that's a, an amazing choice, you know, and not at all kind of a normal or known uh, who song, but just like a just a fantastic, perfect, weird. The beginning of the Who's kind of concept of these weird long form songs, uh, uh, rock opera kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I just really appreciate that that stuff. Well, and that I mean, I love that whole bit where they're both just spiraling, like spiraling out of control, like mm-hmm. <laughs> just uh, you know, uh, Herman showing up. But how long are you going to be staying indefinitely? I'm being sued for divorce. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the very good. thing. Wonderful. Yeah, very yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, very good. Very good. <laughs> Uh, and then I love the, 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 um, 
I'm going to send him back to Ireland in a body bag and that little kid immediately correcting him. He's from Scotland. Right, right, right. And he still calls him a Mick and he, yeah, he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't get it. He's not interested <laughs> in getting it. Uh, now I will say that the time that Max finally, to me watching it, it crossed the line into this is pretty gross is when he shows up with the fake blood and tries to kiss her. That's yeah. that was when yeah. it was like, Oh, all right. Now he's, he's crossed, he's crossed a line at that point, you know, like, but again, this is when they're both like completely spiraling out of control. And <laughs> another great back and forth is um, when Bill Murray shows up after like, again, they've both bottomed out at this point, you know, and now, and now they're going to kind of mend fences and, you know, he shows up and he's like, you said you wanted to put an end to this. He's like, yeah, but I was going to try to make that tree fall on you. <laughs> yes. Like, that big one right there. Yeah. Uh, that would have flattened me like that a flat me. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then you get, you know, then you get, um, and I do like, uh, the Margaret stuff, like her bringing him a plant is very cute. Like Margaret's a very cute character in this. And you yeah, know, you know, pretty much immediately when you first see her where it's going with her, as far as how the story plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I the whole thing and her with the the uh, the plane, you know, like mm-hmm. you see them starting to. It feels like that develops naturally, where his fixation on Rosemary is blinding him to the fact that like this girl is not only perfect for him, but is into him. Yeah, there are. Yeah, girl, there are in the world girls this age who are ripe for the Max Fishers of the world. Yeah, and that's an yeah. important, yeah, important thing to. To learn, yeah. Oh, and then I did I'm, one other part that I had forgotten to is, is with Guggenheim again when he's in the hospital and uh, when when Max leans into him because he I don't know if you can hear me because I'm not sure if your brain is damaged. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know it plays out. You, you get the ending. It's the ending that it deserves. You know because it's not there's not a 100 guarantee that everything is going to be okay for everyone sure. in the end. You know, but everything is better than where it's was in act two, you know, um, because again, they don't deserve, I mean, they deserve some form of like, everything's going to be okay. Probably at the end, like, um, you know, it's rewarding to see them become friends again at the end, which is kind of funny. Cause it's, it's this goofy comedy. And when, when, when they finally become friends and, um, and then that whole thing where he does that, he spends that eight million dollars. And I do love when she doesn't show up and he Bill Murray's walking through the band saying scatter. scatter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, and it's a nice, it's a it's a, it's a it can be tough to stick a landing on a movie where yeah, you your hero can't get what he wants and the thing that he wants the whole movie. Uh, um you know. Our hero is not going to get what he wants, but the audience comes away feeling like everybody kind of got what they deserve or, or what's right is, is a, yeah, that's a, that can be a, a tricky thing. Well, and it's, again, he doesn't do it. Like the, the, the line at the end when he asks Margaret to dance and she's like, no. And he's like, it's okay. He's my friend. Like that's, it's right. sweet. It's very sweet. Yeah. Um, and then, and then having it. Oh, and I do love that. Goddamn. I love one other thing too, is that, uh, Magnus being an absolute natural in his play is fucking sure, hilarious. sure, and that, that's all he ever wanted. That's all he ever wanted. Right. He just wanted to be in one of his dumb plays, as he says. I just, yeah, I wanted to be in one of your dumb plays. And that Herman's crying watching that performance. Oh yeah, yeah. It's uh, but and then that yeah, that play is again. It just 
I suppose it is like the handsprings where, you know, I don't know, you know, in, in what universe can he really pull that off? But we accept it uh, as an audience because we want to. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, just a great. And then it ends with ooh la la, which is a tremendous way to close out as everybody's kind of doing OK. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, what I read good. was it was interesting as we talk about the songs that was one, I think the one song that Wes Anderson hadn't already figured out going into it and that it, he heard that his the music supervisor, uh, uh, Randall Poster, played it to him and he said, yes, OK, that's yeah, that's the song for the ending. I think it was the only case where he discovered the piece of music after the fact. Oh, I see. I didn't know that. So. Well, all right. That's that's Rushmore. Yeah, great movie. Um, and the soundtrack is also great. So we can we can let's let's talk about the music here. Uh, so okay. So the originally the plan for this soundtrack was that it was going to be nothing but kink songs. And yeah. as it was filming, that kept changing to the point where there's only one kink song on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it came out February second, nineteen ninety nine. It never charted. Uh, but here's the top ten albums. The week that it released um number one was britney spears baby one more time number two is lauren hill the miseducation of lauren hill number three is the offsprings americana number four is the dixie chicks wide open spaces number five is nsync self-titled album numbers number six was tupac's greatest hits number seven was shares believe Number eight was DMX's Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood. Number nine was Everlast, Swidey Ford Sings the Blues. And number 10, and this is a really funny one to round out the top 10, WWF Entrance Music Volume 3. Wow. <laughs> so really, you know, when I pull these up, it's to kind of show like, now I, I'm sure Wes Anderson, when he put the soundtrack together, wasn't like, I'm going to have a massive hit soundtrack on my hands. Sure. Like he just wanted stuff. So, you know, he wasn't somebody who was like looking at the trends of the time, but it is kind of funny to just see how, polar opposite from everything on this soundtrack the stuff that was dominating the charts was in this yeah that there was no yeah there was no possibility that this was ever going to tap into a zeitgeist and no. appeal to anybody who wasn't a fan of the film uh, um, or who maybe was a you know british invasion geek yeah <laughs> um and then so as far as this soundtrack goes uh Half of it is by Mark Mothersbaugh, who's the founder of Devo, um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know that. And he's worked a lot with Wes Anderson throughout his career. And he's also done music for movies like the Lego movie, Thor Ragnarok, uh, TV shows like Rugrats, Felix the Cat, and even video games like Crash Bandicoot and Jackson Dexter. So, uh, you know, the score stuff, the Mark Mothersbaugh stuff, like I'm just going to kind of summarize. You can I'm not going to do like a a track by track as far as this goes. But as far as it goes, it's easy to see why Wes is drawn to his compositions. I mean, it is you can from the minute you hear the songs that he's done for this, you can understand why Wes they they feel like they belong in a Wes Anderson movie. Like they're very twee. And I don't mean that as an insult when I know some people like use that as an insult, but I, I, I don't. Uh but, you know, I just I'm not good at talking about score stuff other than being like, yeah, it sounds cool. Like, it's just something I can't I don't have a ton of input on because I'm not like musically trained. So I can't be like, well, the vocoder, I don't know what I'm talking about. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And I don't and I don't either. And and that's the thing. I don't the I don't listen to movie scores. I appreciate them in the context of a, of a movie. Um, and yeah, but what I will say is for yeah, for 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 music that wouldn't have previously appealed to me at all 
way too Baroque, way too precious. I would say, though, that when I did get this soundtrack, I didn't skip through that stuff, which is, you know, says says a lot, I think, for, for Mother's Law that I guess because it still feels of a just shares the personality even with the needle drop stuff. Uh, um, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Yeah. That's actually a very good point And one that I agree with you on. I do listening to this as I've listened to it over the course of this last week or whatever, I've been kind of cramming it in. Um, I've not skipped any of those. You know what I mean? Like I listen to those. It's, 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 it's they are important to the soundtrack because it makes it feel like a cohesive unit. Um, mm-hmm. More so than I think some soundtracks where it's just like slapdash thrown together. There's like this like sort of uh, through line with his score stuff. So it, it's important to the soundtrack. I just don't know how to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the very first song on the soundtrack is The Creations Making Time. And this song came from their album, We Are the Painter Men. Uh, this is actually, this is funny. This is, uh, this song is famous for being one of the first rock songs ever where an electric guitar is played with a bow and most certainly the first one to be a charting hit. And the thing about this song is, so there's something so simple about the structure of this song. I mean, despite the bow thing or something, the, the guitar line is about as simple as it gets. Like, I, I feel like this is one of the songs where it was your first time hearing it. It would feel familiar. Um, and that's exactly was my experience with it. I had not heard it until I heard it in the movie. And I was like, wait a minute, surely I must know this. Is this an early Who song that I have just never heard before? Um, yeah. yeah I, I, when I say that, yes, I, I'm assuming you as well. But like, that's a compliment from me. I don't, it's like, yeah. I don't, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a cool song. It's a great way to open it off. And uh, yeah, just really neat, neat opener to the soundtrack. So up next is Unit 4 Plus 2 Concrete and Clay. Uh, this is from their album titled first album. And I like, I want to make fun of the fact that their album is called first album. But I, then I remember that like one of my favorite albums of all time is big stars, number one record. So I, it's <laughs> funny. I remember when I did got into big star, the broken lizard guys were asking me what I was listening to. They'd never heard of big star. And they're like, Oh, please big star. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, oh what is this album? Uh, number one record. Oh my God. Like they gave me so much shit, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great record by the way. Yeah. Oh, it's I love I love Big Star. Have they come around to Big Star at all, or are they still? No, no. <laughs> Whatever, they're lost. Yeah. They're lost. Um. Oh, but they did end up re-releasing this album under the title Number One, featuring Concrete and Clay. So they they <laughs> they smart. uh smart of them. They sort of fixed it. Uh. So this actually. Oh, here's a funny thing about this song though. This actually became a big hit because of pirate radio stations. Uh, it wasn't like a a mainstream radio hit it was a pirate radio station hit most notably uh wonderful radio london was the one that really pushed it and it eventually became a number one hit in the uk based off of that um now here's a very american thing in the united states uh there is a competing cover version by eddie rombau and it split the sales so in the u.s Eddie Rumbaugh's cover reached number 23 and unit four plus twos reached number 28. So what they did was the cash box bracketed the two competing versions together and called it a combined peak of number 12. So the, it was, it's a kind of a, like, I've never seen that before. Where like never heard of that. Wow. Yeah. And the thing is beyond this song, they only had one mild hit called uh, you've never been in love like this before. And here's the thing so i just did reservoir dogs a few weeks ago and the first Mm -hmm. thing i thought of listening to this was this absolutely could have been on the reservoir dog soundtrack it has that like 
it's it's just I don't, even not just Reservoir Dogs, but particularly Reservoir Dogs, but like really Tarantino. It sounds like something he would use in a film. So, um, and I like that whole Latin music influence that it's got going. Yeah, it's cool as shit. All right, so up next is the Kinks. Nothing in the world can stop me from worrying about that girl, which is from their album Kind of Kinks. Um, I love, 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 love the Kinks. And this is an interesting choice because their only hit single from that song was Tired of Waiting for You. But I'm glad this is what he went with. Uh, it's, you know, it's very quiet and subdued. The guitar line just kind of hangs out in the background. And uh, like his vocals are just kind of above a whisper. I, just, I really like it. Yeah, and I knew kind of just the Kinks' greatest hits and even really probably more of the seventies into the eighties kinks before I heard this and this really drove me to the sixties kinks, which I now love. I mean, you talk about, yeah, tired of waiting for you. Uh, um, I'm a huge sixties kinks fan now based really just based on this song pointing me there. All right. So up next, we've got Chad and Jeremy's a summer song which is from their album Yesterday's Gone, which was their breakthrough single, Yesterday's Gone. And uh, this honestly just kind of sounds like a toned down or turned down version of Yesterday's Gone. I don't mean that in a bad way, mm-hmm. but it's the same theme lyrically, uh, you know, this, but like more gentle folk influence. And here's a little funny story about this is this is their biggest hit. And it was famously Ringo Starr was a judge on the show called Jukebox Jury, where he said this song had no potential to be a hit. It was going to be a flop. And <laughs> Well, here's the thing. In the UK, it wasn't a hit, actually. It was only a big hit in the US. But I, that's weird to me. It wasn't in the UK because I feel like it's easy to understand why this was a big hit listening to it. Uh, there's no accounting for taste when it comes to the British. <laughs> no, just, no, I, no, but it is. a. Um, it's such a even I think by 60s standards, this kind of throwback song, like it might be like a soundtrack from an old Liz Taylor, like a summer place, like, a you know. I think even by the in the '60s, it was kind of a nostalgia song, and so maybe that's why it didn't really play in the UK. It's a very pretty song. It's actually, yeah. I mean, just it's just a, it's one of my favorites on here. Just to oh, kind of give song. away the the ending when I do the top three. Cat um, Stevens, here comes my baby from his album Matthew and Son. So uh, Stevens wrote this song, and then it actually got. Yeah, as this stuff worked out back then, it got released first as a single by the Tremolos. Yeah, and it was a hit the same year. Um, it's been covered by Yola Tango and a bunch of people since then. Um, here's the thing. This is just such an upbeat song, like right from that, like, I don't know if it's xylophone or whatever that opens it, but right. I like this version of Cat Stevens more than his like sad folky Cat Stevens. And I wish he'd made more songs like this because it's very fun. Yeah. I had forgotten that. Cause I think I knew the song from hearing it on the radio and realized I had only heard the tremolos version. Um, and I don't think I knew up until this point that, yeah, he had, an iteration before, you know, the stuff I knew from Harold and Maude. And, and it was cool to see, although I think it sounds like he's quite embarrassed by that, that he was, you know, even at the time didn't appreciate being packaged as a little bit of a pop star, UK pop star at the time. And it's funny, you go back and you look at the, um, I think album cover or the record sleeve from this and you, it, it makes you laugh because you, he was definitely being marketed uh, as this very mainstream bubblegum person and yeah i find yeah. it funny okay so up next we've got the who's a quick one while he's away from their album a quick one uh song in six movements so this is pretty much a warm-up to tommy so much yeah. so that pete Townsend actually called it tommy's parents mm-hmm. um now this might be i don't know we'll see how you feel about this i'm not a big rock opera guy i mean i don't even particularly you already talked about tommy earlier i don't particularly love tommy either and but the thing is 
like Tommy, there's things in this song that I like. I'm just not rock opera stuff doesn't do anything for me. It's a specific, for sure, specific kind of subgenre. And, um, you know, Tommy's probably the exception for me. Like, I'm not, when I got into it with the guys about Meatloaf because he died. And, 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 and to me, some of that Paradise by the Dashboard Light had that quality and I don't love. And even some of Queen's more operatic stuff I don't love. And I think my fondness for this was that we were big rock and roll circus guys and, and it and it was performed on rock and roll circus. And when we were young and, and doing sketch comedy in New York and out all night partying, we would come home and, and put on rock and roll circus. And I, so I think this to me was really more about evoking that time in my life. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and I, there's parts that I like about this song. I really like the opening bit, and I like the the where that sort of that "We'll be home soon" repeated over. That kind of feels like the baby. There's like a Beach Boys influence going yeah, sure, somewhere sure. over the surface. Um, okay, so the next two songs, I almost debated whether or not to include them because they almost like I, I don't know how to talk about songs like this. But you've got Zoot Sims "Bleen Away." Uh, from the album of the same name. So Zoot Sims was a z- jazz saxophonist and he gained attention first from Woody Herman's big band. Um, he has just a nice jazzy interlude. I don't know much to say beyond that. Like it, it, it fits well in the middle of the album. I just don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, this one I always liked, but it didn't send me down to pursue more of Zoot Sims quartet. The next one, the Yves Montand, uh, um, I definitely did go out and listen to more Yves Montand after this. And I still like that. So yeah, yeah. it's not, not anything that I is normally uh, within my taste, but, but uh, the uh, Saint-Vincent definitely did intrigue me. And I like, what I like about the, the Montand song is that, um, you know, in the middle of this like British invasion album, uh, there's this French song with this like sparse piano Actually, Montan's an interesting character. He was actually an actor too, and at one point he was like a full-on communist party who eventually became a re- like a very right-wing reactionary sort of guy as he got older. Um, kind of an interesting character if you ever huh. look up his history. No, and I think yeah, as you pointed out, it is a little off-brand from the British invasion stuff. And what I've read was that was really just Wes Anderson saying what would Max Fisher's idea of make out music be? Um, <laughs> and that was what, and, and now, so that really makes me laugh and it's true. Like, of course that's what Max Fisher's make out music is. <laughs> um, okay. So then up next is cat Stevens, the wind from the album teaser and the fire cat. This is another left field choice in that this is an album that yielded three hits. Morning is broken, Moonshadow, and peace train. This was not one of the hits, but I'm glad he went with this one. And, uh, you know, it packs a lot into a little with it being like a minute and 40 seconds long, but it's a, just, it's a very strong cat Stevens ballad. Yeah. I think it's one of the most beautiful songs ever yeah. made. I just, yeah, I, I, I it's, but I just think it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Then we got John Lennon's Oh Yoko, which comes from Imagine, um, featuring Phil Spector on the harmony vocals in the background. Uh, I, I couldn't figure out what this song was about. No, I'm kidding. It's obviously it's about Yoko Ono. Um, so the thing about this song is I, I love the instrumentation and, I, and listening to it. I feel like this might have influenced. I realize Elliot Smith, Elliot Smith's my favorite musician ever. And I realized okay. that. 
John Lennon and the Beatles were a huge influence on his work, but this feels like it, this song in particular feels like it could have inspired like pretty much everything he did with DreamWorks. Like it's got there's so much of it that reminds me of like stuff from EXO and Figure Eight. Yeah, yeah, and EXO is one of my favorite albums. So yeah, yeah. I, I uh, that's a very interesting connection. Yep. Yeah. No, it's funny because I and I you know I like I said I was a gigantic Beatles fan and even now um, have read a ton and. I didn't know this song uh, until the movie, and uh, yeah, I appreciated the fact that it had you know turned me on to somebody who I like, really thought I had a very thorough knowledge of. Okay, and then we end with the faces "Ooh La La," which is from their final album, which was also titled "Ooh La La." So Ronnie Wood did the vocals on this one, which is rare. Usually, with the faces, it was either Lane or Rod Stewart. Running later, Rod Stewart. Um, and this one is obviously one that's had a lot of covers over the years. Rod Stewart came and gave his crack at it down the road. Um, but this, this version's the best, like this is the best of the versions. It's it, just a very sweet song, this universal sort of chorus. And I got into a, a prolonged argument and this, so this was, you know, so at some point after it came out in a bar, got into it with somebody because I thought that was Rod Stewart singing that version. Um, <laughs> And it's really weird because it is. It's Ronnie Wood, and he sounds a lot like Rod Stewart, uh, um, who was in the same band. So it's weird. But I remember, yeah, I still remember getting into a huge, long debate uh, and was wrong, of course, uh, about who sang that. Um, it was Ronnie Wood. Yep. Okay, great way to close out the album. And then just like the movie, great way to close the movie, great way to close the album. So now, what I, say, though, I do want to put in a, a, a thing, though, because going back and watching the movie – there are two phenomenal songs in the movie that they didn't or couldn't get in the soundtrack. One is Jersey Thursday by Donovan and the other one, I am waiting by the Rolling Stones. I think I read that that was a case where they could afford to get it in the movie, but couldn't afford to put it on the soundtrack. And that's, I think I just, I love that song so much. So anybody who's into this and into the soundtrack, yeah, make sure you check out those, those two songs, you know, elsewhere. There, and there is one other that was not on the soundtrack, but in the movie, and that was Paul Desmond's Take 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they wanted a Brubeck kind of, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Okay, so do a quick little wrap-up here. Uh, so is it on Spotify? Yes, actually. The entire soundtrack can be found on Spotify. That includes the Mark Mothersbaugh stuff. So, um, Paul, the movie, would you consider it an essential? Would you say stream it if you get a chance, or would you say skip it? I consider it an essential but I would caution or I would, I would put the asterisk on anybody who hasn't seen it watching it now that it's certainly not for everybody. You know, and, and here's the thing I, you have me rethinking. Like I have it. As, I just was like a straight up essential, but you have me rethinking. I'm going to agree with you on that. I'm going to go with like an essential for certain age range. I feel <laughs> like, um, but maybe for younger or people who, yeah i'm gonna call you know what fuck it i'm sticking with essential it's an essential but i agree with your take on that good um okay so the soundtrack would you consider the soundtrack an essential would you say stream it would you say skip it or would you say uh cherry pick certain tracks off of it i mean i think it's either you're in all the way or you're out all the way Uh, um i don't i don't know who the audience is for it if if you're you know if you're let's say you like the Beatles, but you haven't really explored the British invasion. I would say absolutely. Uh, um, it just feels like, again, there's something that was, that was designed for my enjoyment. So I think it's amazing. 
But if somebody told me it was the worst soundtrack they'd ever heard, I'd be like, yeah, I can get, I get why you, you would say that, <laughs> you know? I mean, but, I, I'm trying to think like if, if, if I could, if I got a couple of tracks to try to get, get somebody on board, the wind, ooh la la, and making time, uh, shit and the kink song, you know, throw those, I'd throw those at somebody, uh, if I want, if I had one chance to kind of get somebody on board. Okay. And I kind of agree with that. I had it as a strong, I would say, I mean, here's the thing. I would say stream it, but for the same reasons you said, I couldn't call it essential because it's not going to be for everybody, but I would say at least check it out because it's a good collection. And if you don't like it, you don't like it, but it's not going to hurt anything. I would absolutely have no qualms in saying stream it. If you can, you know, it's like I said, it's right there on Spotify. Right. Even though I don't like putting people onto Spotify. Yeah. And um, I would say to people also like, who might be inclined to skip over the mother's boss stuff for the incidental music, I would say, give it like force yourself to listen to those tracks because by the fourth time you will love those as much as you know, you presumably love the needle drops. Yeah. Perfect. All right, Paul, do you think the two work well together? Like the soundtrack and the movie, do they like, do they seem like they're made for one another? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, think about, you know, the movie doesn't work without this soundtrack. You know, somebody, yeah. somebody said, I haven't looked at it, that there, somebody tried cutting together like nineties music into it. And it was like laughably cringy. Yeah. And this is a case where I think it's what the charm of the movie is that it exists in this weird, its own time and place. Uh, uh, it's, you know, like new Englandy kind of feel, but it's in Houston um, the, you know, the age of it all feels so indeterminate. And I think that, that, that works and it makes sense because of the soundtrack. Yeah. And I agree. Like all Anderson movies, the soundtracks are a huge part of the film and that sort of tone that he's mastered at this point. Okay. Real quick here. Top three. What's your top three? If you had to pick a top three, <laughs> the wind making time, it's hard. I love a summer song. I love concrete and clay. <laughs> uh can i have four can i have a four yeah yeah i've done honorable mention ones all right all right that's that's it for me what about you okay chad and jeremy summer song the face is ooh la la and cat stevens here comes my baby would be my top three ah uh, yes here comes my baby uh yeah that's okay. just it to me there's just too many there's this there's just too many <laughs> okay so further watching further listening just a real quick one i you know life aquatic because i feel like life aquatic a lot of people think is where he started to drop off but i love life aquatic so if you haven't watched it in a long time give it a, give it another viewing um i'm gonna throw in watching the detectives i hadn't thought about that when we were talking but i think that fits well with this so if you've not seen paul's watching the detectives fix that and then a few choices that don't fit in as far as music goes but i'm gonna mention since i talked about big star and phantom planet earlier uh check those two out even coconut records um, they don't really fit the theme of the album, but like, I don't know, what am I going to be like, check out more of that John Lennon guy. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we <laughs> talked about, big Star, we talk yeah. about <laughs> he's, he's a unique character. Okay. Well, that's the soundtrack. Paul, uh, what do you have coming here? You've got, well, obviously you've got Tacoma FD. So just, you know, promo some stuff. What do you got? Tacoma FD, right? right? So, and you know, Tacoma FD, we're writing season four. That'll shoot this summer. So actually that'll be, it's, it'll be March before season four of Tacoma is out. So, you know, you can just pencil that in, in the future. Uh, the new broken lizard movie is called quasi. It's fucking awesome. I I'm super excited for this. 
somewhere between late summer and uh, probably midwinter, uh, uh, maybe in theaters, but definitely at least on Hulu. All right. And yeah, Tacoma FD is, again, not just saying that because you're here. I fucking funny as shit. If you've not seen Tacoma FD and you're a fan of Broken Lizard, the the humor in those movies, you need to watch it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Um, you. Yeah, of course. Of course. All right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. And thank you for uh, picking Rushmore. I'm glad to have a long discussion on this movie. Yeah, I mean, Uh, I'm uh, uh, really glad you uh, you had me. I, I love talking about this stuff. All right. Well, everyone at home, thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great weekend. Take care. Ain't no use running. Ain't nowhere to hide. The beast is coming, and he's got you in his sights. He ain't gonna miss you, and he ain't gonna mess around. If you're a movie with original songs, 